Good morning, everyone. We're glad to see everyone with us today. Uh, in particular, I'd like to recognize the uh, Lawrence Academy in Bertie County. I think we have seventh graders from there, so uh, welcome. Uh, the Constitution of our state says that the Supreme Court is to meet in Raleigh or such other places as the General Assembly may designate. In 2004, in recognition of this historic courthouse and the role that Edenton has historically has played in the history of our state, the General Assembly designated that we would uh, be able to hold court in Edenton. So our Supreme Court is uh, grateful to be here. Uh, we thank everybody for uh, your presence in our courtroom today. And of course, uh, this is being live streamed uh, across the state and uh, nation around the world, I guess. So, uh, good morning. Uh, our next case is State versus Rawlinson, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Brandon Mays, and I represent Mr. Rawlinson. I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. Your Honors, this case is about whether the trial court's failure to conduct a colloquy and establish that Mr. Rawlinson's waiver was knowing and voluntary was a substantial violation of our waiver statutes. The answer should be yes. It is also about what this court should do about this kind of error. Generally, this court applies per se error and vacates judgments without requiring a defendant to show prejudice. This court should do the same here. Moreover, by doing so, this court can clarify its waiver of a right to jury trial jurisprudence and provide trial courts with a bright line rule on what they must do before consenting to such waivers. I plan to begin my arguments by explaining how the Court of Appeals erred and concluding the trial court here personally addressed Mr. Rawlinson and Mr. Rawlinson's waiver was knowing and voluntary. I plan to spend the majority of my time explaining what this court should do about that error and how it should, why it should apply error per se. Turning first to the trial court's error. Here, the Court of Appeals held that the trial court personally addressed Mr. Rawlinson and that his waiver was of the right to a jury trial was knowing and voluntary because nothing in the re record established that his waiver was unknowing or involuntary. This holding is wrong for two reasons. First, the record reflects that the trial court did not, in fact, address Mr. Rawlinson personally. And second, its knowing and voluntary uh, analysis flips the burden on its head. Here, the record reflects the trial court did not address Mr. Rawlinson personally. In fact, Mr. Rawlinson did not request a, a bench trial at the beginning of the habitual felon phase. It was only after prompting by the prosecutor that the trial court recognized the bifurcated nature of the proceedings and stated that the jury was coming back or you can waive your right to a jury trial. Importantly, Mr. Rawlinson did not respond. After conferring with his counsel, Mr. Rawlinson's trial counsel responded. Because the trial court did not address Mr. Rawlinson and because his attorney answered for him, the trial court did not satisfy the first requirement under Section 15A, 1201, D1. Let me get some clarification from you on that. In terms of talking about this word personally that appears in the statute, in clarifying what you mean by personally, isn't it obvious that the trial court personally addressed the defendant? I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to ask a trick question, but 
if the trial judge personally addressed the defendant, then personally that began with the trial court. Isn't that right? The trial court personally said something. I think, Your Honor, it, it's reasonable to, to infer that the, the trial court's language, you can waive your right to a jury trial, that maybe the, the trial court was addressing something to Mr. Rawlinson personally. Um, this gets me to, to, the, to the next point um, that... Well, if, if, if that was a personal, was a comment directed to the defendant, does that satisfy the statutory requirement that the trial court make personal inquiry of the defendant? That, that alone, Your Honor, does not satisfy okay, the statutory tell, tell me, tell me why. If you interpret the transcript to say that there's a question posed to the defendant and instead the defendant's counsel responds, why does that not satisfy the, the statutory requirement? Well, first, Your Honor, because the trial court isn't receiving a response necessarily from the defendant. And the whole purpose of the requirement to address the defendant personally is to determine whether or not the defendant understands the consequences of the waiver. I don't think you can get that from, from a third party. Um, you know, that the trial court must address the defendant personally and that the defendant must personally respond to the trial court's inquiry. And again, here, saying something to the effect of, or you can waive your right to a jury trial is not actually an inquiry. It's more of just a statement. And I think what you see afterwards um, sort of illustrates the confusion here. And even if this court does conclude that the trial court addressed Mr. Rawlinson personally, and even if it construes the trial court's statement as a question, these together are insufficient to determine a knowing and voluntary waiver and that Mr. Rawlinson understood uh, the consequences of his waiver. Is your contention that the trial court did not address the defendant personally or that the defendant did not respond personally himself to the trial court? I think it's both, Your Honor. I think you can infer that the trial court addressed Mr. Rawlinson personally in the first instance, although it's not entirely clear. But what comes after is no response from Mr. Rawlinson himself. Thus, you don't have that sort of colloquy that we see in the other context where the, the trial court must you know, ask the defendant questions to understand whether or not the defendant uh, appreciates the consequences of his waiver. Well, you talk about a bright line rule. Uh, where would you have us to draw the line if, in fact, the counsel is there to represent the defendant, the trial court personally makes the statement during the colloquy to the defense table, at what point do we say that counsel no longer is in position to represent the defendant and the defendant needs to represent himself or herself in his or her own voice? I think, Your Honor, it's, it's hard to say, you know, that, a, that an attorney can't answer any question um, for a defendant, but we have drawn this line in other contexts, whether it's the uh, right to counsel, um, there are cases where counsel had actually a, a fairly long conversation with the trial court about what he had advised his, his client um, and that he thought it was a bad idea. And then the trial court, you know, said, okay, whatever, you know, sir, you, you can sit in your attorney's seat. 
And that wasn't enough because there was no inquiry of the defendant himself as to whether he appreciated the consequences of that waiver. I think here the bright line rule is generally is that trial courts must establish knowing involuntary waiver on the record through a colloquy with the defendant before they can consent to such waiver. Um, exactly how the, the, the minutia of that colloquy works, I think, is an open question, Your Honor. How do you feel about what the Court of Appeals said in that there is no script, and as a result, since there is no script for the colloquy, then the colloquy develops in the sense that the trial court determines what is sufficient to satisfy the statute? I think this court could certainly um, continue to, to hold that there is no script. Um, you know, there, there is more of a script in the plea context. There is more of a script for the right to counsel context. But what we have in this case is really nothing um, during the habitual felon phase um, as to a colloquy with, with between the trial court and the defendant. So even if there is no script, it has to be something more than, than, than was here. Well, what do, you, what do you make of your colleague's suggestion that uh, you, can't, you can't just look at the interaction that occurred immediately before the habitual felon proceeding, that you also have to view the whole record, which includes the proceeding that happened before the bench trial started? Well, Your Honor, I think I would just respectfully disagree. Um, All right, and tell, tell, tell me why you disagree. Uh, well, the, the habitual felon statutes state that the habitual felon charges should be brought as if they were a principal charge. Um, in fact, the habitual felon statutes, statutes state that even the charge of habitual felon should not be revealed in, in sort of presumed case to a jury until the jury has already convicted on the principal charges. So it's hard to say that Mr. Rawlinson could have even waived his right to a jury trial in the habitual felon phase for a habitual felon trial that may not have even happened at the principal phase. Um, but I think the statutes lay it out. They are separate proceedings and they should be treated separately so that what matters is, is what happened at the habitual felon phase. If I understood the state's argument, and I may have misunderstood <coughs> it, but if I understood it, they were not saying so much that there was a binding waiver of the right to trial by jury at both the guilt innocence phase and the habitual felon phase prior to the habitual to the guilt innocence phase but that instead given what happened before the guilt innocence phase you can assume that the defendant knew what what he was doing and therefore that provides some assurance that the waiver was appropriate. That seems to be the argument that I think was made in the state's brief. If it's not, I can be corrected. But uh, assuming that's correct, what's your response to it? Your Honor, I think that, again, because of the nature of the proceedings, um, that they should have been separate. Um, and that although you could look to you know, what happened in the principal phase, uh, we, we can't sort of, and this court has, has not allowed trial courts to presume a defendant's sort of um, assumed prior knowledge uh, of what their rights were. Uh, didn't, didn't let trial court do that even with a judicial official. Someone you would presume, again, knows their rights. Um, but even if you do include what happened at the uh, principal phase in this, in this case, the the colloquy at, at that stage, um, although Mr. Rawlinson isn't arguing, was insufficient 
before this court was very cursory. Um, also, the, the circumstances between the charges involved at the principal phase and the habitual felon phase are different, and the trial court did not inform Mr. Rawlinson of that, of that different nature. Um, so I think even if you do include uh, that first colloquy in the principal phase, it's not enough here to, set, to, to make up for the lack of any colloquy actually at the habitual felon phase. To follow up on Justice Urban's question, it does appear uh, in the uh, initial waiver, which was the day before, uh, with regard to the uh, uh, principal charges, that uh, in reading those charges, uh, they actually included habitual felon. Uh, and to the extent that the prosecutor then subsequently uh, seemed to suggest to the court that the court uh, didn't need to uh, revisit it because uh, uh, there had been that previous waiver. Now the court declined the, pros the prosecutor's uh, offer of not revisiting it and did it anyway. But uh, does that add to our analysis that uh, actual, the habitual felon charge was part of that initial dialogue? I don't think it does, Your Honor. Um, I don't think it would have been actually proper at that point to bring up the habitual felon charge as the habitual felon statutes lay out that it, sh it shouldn't have at least been brought before a jury before they were convicted on the principal charges. Um, and the habitual felon uh, case number was not included on at least the first written waiver um, that would have included uh, the principal charges. So I just don't think that whatever happened at the principal phase really influences uh, the trial court's uh, failure to establish a knowing and voluntary waiver at the habitual felon phase. What weight should we give to the written waiver since there was a written waiver on the principal charge, there were two written waivers, no, one written waiver on the principal charges and then a second uh, waiver with regard, written waiver with regard to the habitual felon. Your Honor, I don't think this court should give much weight to those waivers, the written waivers at all. Um, first, written waivers are, are not a substitute to the trial court's duty to establish knowing a voluntary waiver on the record. Um, they are something in addition to that. They can provide an, a presumption of knowing a voluntary waiver, um, but if the record reflects opposite, the opposite, that, that presumption is rebutted. And that's what we have here. Mr. Rollinson responded, or Mr. Rollinson's counsel responded to the trial court's uh, statement uh, that he was not requesting a jury trial and that he was comfortable with a bench trial. Um, but Mr. Rollinson did not have to request a jury trial. That is the, that is the, uh, that is the default under our Constitution. Um, and his language of comfortable with the bench trial is more language of ask, acquiescence than it is asking for a bench trial. Um, so I don't think there's much weight to those written waivers. Really, they're there to, to memorialize uh, what the trial court did, did, what the trial court's duty was to do on the record. And if you look at the language, uh, record page 61, of what said happened in, in open court and what the trial court did, actually did not happen and did not happen to at least some extent in either the principal phase or the habitual felon phase. That brings me to what this court should do about this kind of error. 
Here, the Court of Appeals, Appeals erred in requiring Mr. Rawlinson to show prejudice because the trial court's failure to inquire and establish Mr. Rawlinson's waiver was knowing a voluntary, was central to the right to a jury trial, and at least affected the very framework of the trial itself. Again, in such cases, this court applies error per se and does not require a showing of prejudice. And it does so not only to those issues central to constitutional rights. It does so even when a defendant could not show prejudice because higher considerations require, other than the outcome require, and those include the appearance of fundamental fairness and the adherence to constitutional protections. And here, the right to a jury trial is a fundamental bedrock constitutional right. North Carolina was this last state in the union to even allow a waiver provision in its constitution. Are you, are you saying that any deviation from strict compliance with the statute produces error per se, or are you saying something less than that? Your Honor, I don't think the court has to say that and hasn't, and again, hasn't said that. Um, well, in the next, to, to question, give Mr. next question is going to be if there's a, uh, I'll let you give, have, have both of them in advance. The next question is going to be if there is strict compliance required, how do you square that with uh, Hamer? Yes, Your Honor. So Hamer presents sort of a different type of error, I would say. And in this court in Hamer held that where the trial court violated the waiver statutes by conducting an otherwise adequate colloquy establishing knowing involuntary uh, waiver on the record after the trial began, that that violation was sort of purely pr uh, procedural or technical that required showing prejudice. Well, what, what's the difference between a technical violation? I mean, how do we tell whether what the difference is between a technical violation and some other kind of violation that would presumably be error per se? I think that can be difficult, Your Honor. I would say that which, where... Which is, which is why I asked the question. Yes, sir. I think... Um, that when the violation gets to the heart of the constitutional protection, um, and in this case, the constitutional requirement, requirement that this court has established for waiver of any constitutional right, and that's that knowing a voluntary waiver be shown on the record affirmatively, um, that's where you can sort of see the, the distinction. And I think this case provides a good uh, distinguishing line between Hamer and, and this court's ruling in Hamer and the facts in this case um, to sort of, at least to an initial degree, show a distinction between a technical, Hamer, te technical error and a substantive error. And again, here in Hamer, this court addressed a timing issue. But what was important was that the, court, the trial court actually conducted a colloquy and established a knowing and voluntary waiver on the record. Um, but this court did recognize in Hamer that at that point, Mr. Hamer could have compelled a mistrial regardless of actual prejudice and even with the advantage of knowing how the bench trial went. So the difference between Hamer, there, at least there was knowing involuntary waiver uh, on the record. Here, we don't have that. And in fact, we have the opposite. Mr. Rollinson's, Mr. Rollinson's counsel's response was more that he did not understand the very nature of his right, that he did not have to ask for a jury trial, that it was the, the, the presumed method for a trial under our Constitution. And this court doesn't have to disturb Hamer in order to grant Mr. Rawlinson relief. It can merely clarify that some statutory violations are constitutional in nature and or can affect the framework of the proceedings such that they are error per se. And in doing so, this court can, provide, can create a bright line rule for trial courts 
that they must establish knowing involuntary waiver on the record through a colloquy with the defendant before consenting to such waiver. And this court has provided the same clarity in the plea and right to counsel contexts. And your honors, even if this court requires, requires a showing of prejudice, Mr. Rawlinson was prejudiced because he did not understand the nature of his right and he acquiesced to the bench trial and because the wrong ends he convicted him. Mr. Rawlinson can't show the standard, uh, the standard prejudice of a reasonable possibility that a jury would come to a different conclusion. And I think a lot of that inability to show that type of prejudice stems ma mainly from the nature of the habitual felon charges themselves. However, requiring a showing of prejudice in this context will affect this type of error in other contexts where well, the entity it, it, that convicts I, I, the defendant. I hate to keep interrupting you, but one of the things that occurred to me is what is the question that we would ask in any harmless error inquiry that might be undertaking, undertaken? Is it the, the typical one? Is there a reasonable likelihood that the outcome would have been different? Or is it whether there's a reasonable outcome if the colloquy had been conducted as you said it should be, that the defendant would have not exercised his right to waive jury trial? I, th I think, Your Honor, that the both of those are, are relevant. You know, obviously, well, they're, they're, the second they're, one is... They're two different things. They, so, they are. So, so if, you, if, you were to, if you were stuck with saying there is some prejudice inquiry here, what do we ask ourselves? I think you can ask yourself either of those questions, Your Honor, and it's still hard to get to, to an answer on that based on the, the nature of... of the facts of this case and, well, and the habitual yeah, felon I've, I've, I've learned a long time ago that somebody once wrote, if you ask yourself the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. Uh, what is the right question here? Your Honor, I, I, th I think the right question on the, in, on the prejudice issue um, is really that, I, I guess I can answer it this way, and in this context, here, Mr. Rawlinson can actually show the type of prejudice that you would this court would presume in a per se error analysis. Um, and I think that fact shows that at, that actually should be this, the standard. Um, I think if you're asking in a traditional sense what you should be looking for as, as far as prejudice, it, it's I think you could use either one of those or both of them to, to try and find prejudice. I think what's different about Mr. Rawlinson's case here is that he can actually show that prejudice that you would presume. Um, and here the trial court was confused about the very nature of the proceedings. At least five times the trial court said that Mr. Rawlinson had pled to being an habitual felon and he even ordered, or the trial court even ordered the plea recorded. And the trial court persisted in saying that Mr. Rawlinson pled to being a habitual felon even after the prosecutor tried to correct the court. Thus, the trial court rendered judgment in open court based on a plea that never happened. And this type of confusion would not have occurred with a jury present. And I guess that's the best I can do sort of to answer your, your question, Your Honor, although I, I, I presume that's probably not satisfactory. And if there are no more questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Here from the appellee. 
May it please the court, I am John Congleton from the Attorney General's Office, specifically Assistant Attorney General representing the state in this matter. At the outset, this is an interesting case in the sense that this case came before the trial court and initially in the guilt-innocence phase, we, and this, I, I, my understanding of the timing is the waiver of a, a right to a jury trial is still a relatively new concept uh, when this is occurring. And the defendant approaches the state, I guess, saying, hey, we, we don't want a jury trial, we want to waive. And the prosecutor brings it up to the trial court and they, they, there's some question about it. But at any event, the trial court then addresses them in the guilt, guilt, uh, personally in the guilt-innocence phase and they establish a waiver. Now, of course, defendant is subsequently convicted by the trial court and then we move to the habitual felon phase. And this is interesting because at that time, the prosecutor indicates he's already waived. We contend we don't have to go through this again. The trial court itself says, no, this is a separate procedure, so we're going to go back through the waiver process. And at that point... Do, do you agree that there needs to be a separate waiver in a case like this where you've got both the guilt instance phase and a... Uh, Habitual felon, in a habitual felon phase? I will say, Your Honor, that as an attorney, I think it is a much cleaner process to separate the two. And, and, and if I may explain my reasoning, because of the fact that a person might, at the outset, of the, if the guilt-innocence phase and the habitual felon phase are indeed two completely separate um, transactions, so to speak, a person could waive at the outset of the guilt-innocent phase and potentially, depending upon what happens in the guilt-innocence phase, decide, hey, wait a minute, maybe in this next phase I don't want to be tried by a trial court. Maybe I really do want that. So I think if they are individual transactions, the safest course of action for any trial court is going to be to hold them separately in case there is a change of heart that occurs in the guilt-innocence well, phase. Assume, uh, you know, Putting best practice aside, under this statute, do you have an opinion or does the state have a position as to whether you could uh, waive a, a jury trial with respect to both phases of a bifurcated proceeding at the beginning? I believe, Your Honor, that you could in fact do that and still satisfy the constitutional question of it being knowing, voluntary, and intelligent, yes. But in this case, the trial court eclipsed that because the trial court revisited the issue as a separate transaction and said, hey, here we go. And, and he asks, and I, again, I would like to reiterate, he does not say, counsel, is he waiving his right? He says to the defendant, the jury's coming back in to hear this, or you can waive your right. It's very clear. It's not the counsel's right. It's Mr. Rollinson's right. And when the trial court says you and your, he is addressing Mr. Rollinson. And what is interesting here is Mr. Rollinson doesn't say, sure, I'm good with a, a bench trial. His counsel goes, they turn around, they have a conference. They discuss this. He discusses this with his attorney, his licensed, competent attorney. Based upon those discussions, the attorney says, hey, He's, he's comfortable with a jury trial. The language, a little bit peculiar, granted, but it's very clear from the language used by the trial court that the trial court was asking, is this a waiver? The fact that his counsel says, well, he's comfortable with it, 
it was clear what the court was asking, and the answer is in the affirmative, despite the language being a bit peculiar. Furthermore, upon saying that, defendant himself does not say, wait a minute, that's not what I said, I want a jury trial. There's zero interaction from the defendant saying this isn't right, I don't agree, my counsel has, there's none of that. And most importantly, what we saw with the first waiver in the guilt-innocent phase and what we saw in the second for the habitual felon phase is that defendant then signs the waiver of counsel form. And what's critical about that is, because we keep talking about vis-a-vis -vis the colloquy and the, you, know, you must show on the record, we have on the record here a written waiver of a jury trial form by the defendant where the defendant specifically signs, and a matter of fact, I'm gonna pull it up here so I can quote the language correctly. Uh, let's see, they're gonna be easy. one past. The language that defendant signed says, I've been provided of notice of my intent in open court. Um, he said, I've been informed in open court of the charges against me, the nature of the statutory punishment. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing these a little bit, but I've been, I have a right to be tried by a jury of 12, that I can participate in the selection of jurors. I've been advised that if I waive this, the judge alone will, will find my innocent or guilt. I fully understand and appreciate the consequences of my decision to waive the right to be tried by a jury. And then beneath that, sworn, affirmed, and subscribed to me, the court clerk, signature of defendant. Is, and, is, is the state's argument then that it is sufficient compliance with the statute to have a waiver of the right to jury trial form like this signed and nothing else? Not specifically, no, Your Honor. But what I am saying is, is that when the trial court says, do you wish to waive your right and gets an affirmative answer, and you have a defendant who, in, in this case, we know he spoke to his attorney, they conferred, beneath that language I just read is the part where the attorney says, I discussed all this with them. Um, and I won't read the whole thing there, but it, it basically reiterates all the things an attorney should speak to their client about. And the attorney signs, saying, I've briefed my client on all this. This is evidence that the defendant, and strong evidence, that the defendant knew and understood exactly what he was doing when he waived his right to a jury trial. Now, there may be a circumstance, Your Honor, where let's say the trial court comes in it does nothing, let's just say the prosecutor says, well, he wants to waive his jury trial, and the judge says, okay, well, okay, cool, we won't do a jury, and there's no colloquy. Well, then you're gonna have a different circumstance than you have here. Now, well, I well, if we had that, just to understand the parameters of the state's argument here, if we had the situation that you just described, in your view, is that a valid waiver of, of the right to trial by jury under the statute and or constitution? I believe so, Your Honor, in the sense that we know that his waiver was knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. We may have a statutory violation that the court can then look at, and the court can say, okay, well, the judge did not do the personal colloquy. So we know we have a violation of 15A, 12, one. Uh, but we have a violation of the statute. So the question becomes now, is this, and, and I think this is the sort of the second part of the argument we heard before, are we now in a situation where we have to determine that this error itself was error per se, or structural error, where because of this error, there's simply no way whatsoever, the, 
framework of the trial is such that there's no way there can be a fair outcome. Before it, you go to prejudice, can I um, ask you how with the what the implications of agreeing with you that all the judge has to do is say you will you waive your right does not need to hear anything verbally from the defendant um, how we how, if we conclude that that is sufficient to um, address the defendant personally and determine whether he fully understands and appreciates the consequences of his decision to waive this right wouldn't that then also apply to waiver of counsel and to every plea and and so when plea agreements are taken the court doesn't have to hear from the defendant that he's actually pleading guilty and free and voluntary and understands he's waiving his right to appeal as long as he signs a form and his counsel says i've talked to him about it how do we have, aren't we ultimately don't we have to apply the same standard in all three contexts well i think you are in in all three contexts again the facts of each case can be different, but in a circumstance where the judge looks at a defendant and does personally address a defendant and say, do you wish to waive? And the defendant says yes. But here he didn't say yes, is my understanding. He didn't say anything. Well, his counsel conferred with him as to the question and then informed the trial court. He, the trial court, didn't, the, the, the counsel did not say I and good with a bench right. trial. But, but am I wrong? Don't we require in the waiver of a constitutional right to counsel or in the circumstance of taking a plea agreement that the defendant himself has to respond to the court? In those contexts, I would submit they're different in the sense that in this particular instance, it's very clear that counsel is conveying defendant's position. Now, I think if it's very clear that we are dealing with the defendant's position and not simply counsel making decisions for their client, because the, the right ultimately belongs to the defendant. And a, a court may not, depending upon the circumstances before an individual case, a court may determine, I, I'm not going to accept that. That's simply not appropriate, because perhaps there's evidence in a record where maybe we're not sure what a defendant wished to do. But here we know because he signed it under oath twice in two days that he understood. Right, but the, when the General Assembly was trying to figure out how to implement the new constitutional amendment, um, they came to the conclusion and put in the statute that the court should address the defendant um, personally and determine whether the defendant, not whether the defendant's attorney, but whether the defendant fully understands and appreciates the consequences. And that's language that appears in other contexts where we require that there be, that a colloquy is, is a, in a conversation <laughs> and that we require the defendant to himself say, yes, I understand, and the court to base its conclusion because this is all under the section judicial consent to the jury waiver. The court has to decide, am I going to consent to this waiver? And how can the court do that without hearing from the defendant? As our, as at least, hasn't our General Assembly said that he should, they should hear from the defendant? And, and it's, my con it's my contention, Your Honor, uh, pardon me, Justice, uh, that the court did hear when the defendant signed the waiver. That is the defendant. His counsel can't sign the waiver form for him as a specific form. Defendant here signed, I, I know all of this and I've done it. And I would contend that if the trial court addresses the defendant in open court as it does here, do you wish to waive this? He says yes, and then signs this form laying out all the niceties. 
I think that's sufficient evidence in the record and it's sufficient to meet that burden and to satisfy the trial court because if the defendant didn't want to waive, the defendant would not sign the form. Right, and my question is, if we agree with you, then wouldn't that also apply to any waiver of counsel and any plea agreement? I, I don't believe that I would take the position that it would apply to all things. Again, I, I really think that there are circumstances where perhaps, um, you know, I think there has to be circumstances where counsel can speak for their client in situations, especially where their client cannot or, or there may be other issues. But I'm not necessarily sure I'm prepared to say that we would extend this beyond because there may be circumstances where it's inapplicable. And, and I'm not, that case is not before me right now. So unfortunately, I'm not just not comfortable saying let's apply this to all constitutional rights, no. Right, but don't we have to understand the basis for the distinction? Otherwise, our decision would then apply generally. I, I, again, I would, I would not think that would be the case at all. I think in the case before you, we have all this evidence. He was addressed personally. He responded. Uh, through his counsel orally and in writing affirming that and I think that's sufficient for this case and this right based upon what's required for that to become a, a waiver of the right to jury trial to be knowing and voluntary um, so I, I don't think you have to extend it to everything I think it's fine to keep it specifically to this right because this court is distinguished for instance uh, in things like uh, improperly constituted jury, for instance. It, 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 you're not going to treat those two things the same way. I think the court has treated those almost as structural error regardless. Because so, so are you suggesting then that the right to a jury trial in our Constitution is not as weighty or fundamental as the right to counsel or the, the right to appeal that you give up when you enter a plea? Ab absolutely not. Uh, the, the argument, of course, is, is that when you have this whether you have uh, error, for instance, what level does that go to? An error in uh, structural error, if you will, where there can, no matter what happens, there could not be a, a fair outcome, then of course not. But in cases like this, you can have technical errors that occur that are not gonna rise to that level. And you may well have a prejudicial analysis based on that. But let me let me let me ask you one. I mean, again, I'm trying to understand the extent to which your argument goes. We've got the quotation at the uh, from the transcript that says, "Trial court, I'll do that." At this point, the trial's at this point in the trial, it's a separate trial. The jurors are coming back to hear the habitual felony matter, where you can waive your right to a jury trial and we can proceed. And then we have the, the indication in the transcript that counsel asked permission to speak with the client, spoke with the client. Uh, and then indicated that the client waived it. If there was no evidence in the transcript that such a conference between the counsel and the defendant occurred, so that after the trial court statement, uh, counsel simply said, Your Honor, we can proceed, or something like that, no indication of consultation with the uh, defendant. Is that a valid waiver of the right to trial by jury, even even if there's a, a, a signed waiver of counsel, I mean, a waiver of trial by jury in the, the file? I think at that point, Your Honor, you may well have a very clear violation of the statute, and then whether it rises to the level of a constitutional violation where the defendant, if the defendant intended to waive and it was knowing involuntary, then perhaps there's, there's not 
But that being said, you've emphasized constant difference between the statutory and the constitutional violation several times. The constitutional provision, I think, I don't have it in front of me, says that the waiver should be taken, should be addressed uh, in the form prescribed by the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. So that, to some extent, could be construed to merge the two, couldn't it? Well, the. When you get to this point where there's a violation of the statute, and again, you have to look at the facts and circumstances to determine the nature of the error, and is the error technical, or is the error actually, I'm going to use this term badly out of context, but substantive in a sense, that we know that because of this error there was this outright violation. We know that because of this error the defendant did not knowingly, voluntarily, intelligently waive this right. And in a circumstance where there is no evidence in the record, then perhaps that's a factual determination where the court says there's no evidence in this record that the defendant ever intended to knowingly, voluntarily, or intentionally waive this right. And in that circumstance, then, you might then get into the analysis of if you have this where the trial court, again, I'm using some terminology here, but where the trial court has deprived the defendant of that choice of that right at the outset, then perhaps then you get into this is now structural because there cannot be a fair outcome where the defendant is, is sort of deprived of this right completely. In this case here, and if I may you know, quote Hammer, I believe it was, the Hammer, the, as the court indicated, the trial court, the defendant complains that the trial court denied him a jury trial he didn't want. And here we know we've got that because he was addressed the day before in guilt innocence. He was advised the same the next day in habitual felon. He asks, they confer, his counsel responds, this is fine, not paraphrasing. And then again, he signs the waiver. And it, there's been, it never indicates he doesn't want to do this. There's no ineffective assistance of counsel. There's no MAR, there's none of that. Defendant appear, apparently was happy with the way that, that occurred at the time. And so I think we have a technical error here, if there is an error, because basically it's clear from the record, there's overwhelming evidence in the record, that the defendant was advised of these things, signed off, and was good with waiving that let me, right. Let me add, and I'm going to stop interrupting your argument here for a second and let somebody else talk, but if the, uh, I want to ask you the same question I asked Mr. Mays. If we get to a harmlessness inquiry here, what is the question that we should ask ourselves? I think I gave him two possibilities, and he said both. One being, is there a reasonable likelihood the outcome would be outcome of, that the hearing would have been different, or is the inquiry, is there a reasonable likelihood that the defendant would not have waived the right to trial by jury? It, I believe, Your Honor, that I see both of those questions as being necessary in a case, not either or. In the sense, as I was just talking about, whether or not the, uh, the, in the first instance, do we really have this violation? And then if so, which path do we go down? But if we have this violation here, I think the proper standard is that is prejudicial error. In the sense of, if we look at the error and go, this is, uh, using the, the terminology from Hamer, a technical error, then at that point, we're just looking at prejudicial. If you have a situation where the court looks at the error and says, 
but, and, and I will use the analogies of the uh, improperly constituted jury, where this has to be structural, then maybe that question answers, you know, answers the analysis. But if you're looking at this one, yeah, this is kind of a technical thing, then the, the operative question becomes, was there prejudice based on that? And in this case, there was, I don't think there was any prejudice. We've argued, uh, in, I've argued in my brief, um, A, he I would contend that, of course, he waived it, but B, when they put on the, pardon me, the state put on the evidence of the three judgments of the prior felony convictions, the defendant's defense to this essentially was, yeah, I've been convicted of those three. My strategy was I was going to try to go in and get one vacated, but I didn't do it. So, so there's no prejudice there on a technical violation of the statute because I just don't see a reasonable possibility for one. Um, in the a, sense a, that there's a only a technical... A reasonable, a reasonable possibility of what? Uh, of there being a different outcome based right. upon the total... I'm not going to say acquiescence necessarily, but the total lack of any defense to that, other than to say we had a strategy to, to vacate one of them and didn't. It's, it's almost an admission in a sense. But my point is, if you have this technical violation where you say, well, the judge should have had the defendant himself answer the question rather than his counsel, but we've got this evidence in the record that he did intend to waive, and there's you know, no reasonable possibility a jury's going to do anything different with this considering the essential acquiescence to the stop, to the, the uh, judgments, then at that point, I think that's the end of the analysis. There's no prejudice here in that regard. Now, again, if this was an improperly constituted jury, which I think this court has looked at in those and said, from the moment that happens, the whole structure of the case is bad, then how can you go in, for instance, with, well, and this court has, I think, said pretty much in those cases, that's going to be per se. Because at that point, no matter what happens, you can't cure it. There is no cure for that. But this is different. Throughout your conversations with Justices Irvin and Earls, you've emphasized the aspect of the written waiver. The colloquy is independent of the written waiver, and I know how you're talking about how uh, the uh, written waiver, while not in the stead of the colloquy, nonetheless can uh, buttress it. But in terms of having a meaningful colloquy, even with a written waiver, isn't it effective for a colloquy to have the defendant to say in his or her own voice that he or she understands what's in the written waiver and understands everything that's going on with fully understanding and appreciating because only the defendant himself or herself can say what truly he or she fully understands or appreciates? I, Getting back to the beginning, I do think that the best practices would be a not necessarily voluminous, but a very a detail, a more detailed colloquy is certainly going to be better all the way around. And for instance, having the defendant answer directly, but we don't really know. You know, the defendant may not be as easy in speaking back and forth. I don't know. That's something that's not in the context of the transcript. Maybe the defendant shy. Don't know. I agree with your honor that the very best way that this could work out would be to have a very detailed colloquy and it be, you know, the defendant specifically saying, yes, absolutely, I understand this point, yes, I do. But I don't know that 
that's a requirement under the, the that may be you know, sort of what you what you want to see, but I'm not sure it's a specific requirement. The language in the statute itself to me is a bit strange, and it just says uh, address the defendant personally to determine if they knowingly and voluntary. If if the judge, if Trump, pardon me, the trial court were to say, uh, or you know, would you like to waive your right or whatever, and the defendant says, well, I've read the form here, so I'm, yeah, I'll sign that. Yeah. Is, I mean, I don't think written necessarily violates it. I do agree that it's much cleaner if the defendant does this on the record, on the transcript, in his or her own words. But Let me ask a follow-up on that. Um, the statute also requires that in the, the addressing the defendant that the trial court determine that the defendant fully understands and appreciates the consequences of his decision to waive the jury trial. And here, the what colloquy there is, the the judge asks him or says, well, you know, the jury's going to come back and they're going to hear your case, or you can waive it. There, in, in Hamer, what this court approved, the trial court gave much more detail about, went on to say, and the understand, you understand the charges and the, the penalty can possibly be, da da da. Um, is that a meaningful distinction to the state, or do they not need to, the trial court does not need to say anything about what the what the consequences are in terms of the charges or punishment? Well, it's, it's interesting in the sense that the trial court is asking that question. The trial court knows and sees, well, the trial court did a, a, a little better colloquy in the first day, but on the second day, and probably with that sort of background, asks, okay, are we gonna do the same thing as yesterday? And he confers with his counsel He's already signed one waiver. He's willing to sign another waiver. If the person is willing to sign the waiver in those circumstances, can the trial judge say, you know, that satisfies me that this defendant does understand because they have been briefed. They have signed the waiver before. They are familiar. It's the very next day. They're not objecting. That being said, I mean, it, What does that tell you about his understanding of the consequences of that decision? Well, I think that the defendant understood the consequences because he was briefed. He did speak with his, his attorney there, and he's raised no objection to that. The defendant's not spoken and said, hey, on second thought, I didn't understand. The defendant hasn't popped up and said, ineffective assistance of counsel. They never explained to me the difference, and his counsel signed under oath that they had explained all of this. The evidence in the record is that he was briefed. He did know. He did understand, and he willingly signed that form under oath uh, affirming that and that evidence is in the record before this court. It was a knowing and voluntary waiver. Um, despite the trial court's short shrift given to the colloquy. We could have a better colloquy, of course, but obviously we're stuck with the record before us. Are you seeing that we should give some weight to the fact that in terms of the uh, temporality of the second uh, segment of this matter, the habitual felon aspect with the first one, uh, the substantive one just the day before, that that should be given some weight in terms of at least the recency of what had been uh, occurring the day before in terms of how the trial court, perhaps in some level of discretion, uh, should arguably there have been some discretion to see some linkage between the first day and the second day. Well, and I do think it goes to that facts and circumstances in the determination of does the defendant, does this defendant know and understand 
this process of waiving and what's at stake. And I think that that is evidence that he does because it is close. It was done on the record the day before. We are following up. And, he, and he's read, we know that he read and signed this information on this waiver, which contains all of it the day before. He's aware of what's there. And the defendant never says, wait, I don't want to do this. There, there's zero evidence anywhere that the defendant, this is not exactly what the defendant wanted to do and did. And so therefore, I do think it, it goes to that analysis that a court must do to determine, you know, again, is there this sort of, he doesn't know, he didn't understand. We've got all this evidence that he did. Seeing no further questions, I would ask this court to please uh, uphold the uh, lower court's opinion. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few quick points. So I think where, where a lot of the rub is here is what type of error this was. Um, my colleague here says that it's just a technical violation, purely statutory in nature. However, again, this court is time and again in the waiver context said that establishing or affirmatively showing a knowing involuntary waiver on the record is a constitutional requirement. So I, I think this case shows constitutional error. And even if it doesn't, because the wrong entity uh, convicted Mr. Rawlinson without a knowing involuntary waiver, it affected the very framework because the wrong, the wrong entity was there to hear the case. And again, we don't know what, attorney, what Mr. Rawlinson's attorney said to him during, uh, during their conversation. Um, and the language in the attorney's answer only reflects that Mr. Rawlinson may have misunderstood his right to begin with. And I think what's important is the trial court statement again was the ultimate question of whether or not Mr. Rawlinson wanted to waive. But it had no foundation for whether Mr. Rawlinson's waiver was knowing and voluntary. And if you look at the written waiver, nothing, at least in this habitual felon phase, nothing that that waiver says the trial court did in open court actually happened. And we, this court requires more in the right to counsel in the plea context. You know, the language of of Section 15A-1201 isn't so strange. Um, if you look at 15A-1242, the statute on uh, a defendant's election to represent himself at trial, it says that defendant may be permitted at his election to proceed uh, without the assistance of counsel after the trial judge makes thorough inquiry and is satisfied that the defendant has been clearly advised of his right, including assignment to counsel if he's entitled, understands and appreciates the consequences of his decision, and comprehends the nature of the charges and proceedings of range of possible punishments. This court before has held that trial court must conduct this colloquy and get responses from a defendant before it can consent to, its way, to the defendant's waiver uh, of, a right, of the right to counsel. And I think in requiring a lot less of trial courts in this context, uh, whether intentionally or, or just by practice, actually does start to stratify these rights, um, which I don't think we should do. I, I'm not saying that there is a specific script that we must adhere to uh, on the, the right to a jury trial waiver, but what has to happen is more than what happened in this case, which is tantamount to nothing. Um, 
And in conclusion, Your Honors, the trial court violated the statute mandating a colloquy with Mr. Rawlinson before consenting to his purported waiver of a jury trial. As a result, the record does not affirmatively show a knowing and voluntary waiver. In fact, it shows the opposite. Therefore, the trial court's error is error per se. Moreover, this court should reaffirm the notion that substantive statutory violations, which affect the fundamental framework of a trial, are error per se. And in doing so, this court can provide a bright line rule to trial courts that they must establish knowing involuntary waiver on the record through a colloquy before consenting. Mr. Rawlinson respectfully requests this court reverse the Court of Appeals and vacate the habitual felon conviction. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel. Mr. Clark. All rise.